This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, Grant. How's it going? Ugh. Why did you use my name? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh. I just felt very formal today. Uh. Hello, Mrs. Mead. How are you? <laughs> are you ready to do this week's episode? I actually am. But before we get started, I want to say thank you to everybody that uploaded their DNA to Jed Match and everybody who had already uploaded their DNA to Jed Match. So sorry you weren't able to get a mug but i'm still proud of you guys i didn't even get a mug and i uploaded my dna well that's because you didn't upload your dna i uploaded your dna and i already had a mug so you know i had no incentive yeah so for everybody who did do it though your mugs are on the way and you should be receiving them pretty soon way to go guys yeah thank you guys so we should get right into this week's episode because this could end up being a pretty long episode if we don't get our shit together I know I say every week that I'm excited for the cases, and I legitimately am, but I'm really excited to to jump into Steven Stainer because it's a crazy story. Like you say, it's bananas. So I loved learning about this and getting all the research in. And Yeah, this one has all the emotions. Oh, yeah. A very lawless land. It's got everything. Yeah. So Steven Stainer was the middle child of Kay and Del Stainer. He had an older sister, an older brother, and then two younger sisters. The Stainers lived on a ranch with like tons of animals outside of Merced, California. But by 1972, they had sold their ranch and moved into the city. Uh, what was topping the country charts in 1972? <laughs> it was She's Too Good to Be True by Charlie Pride. Do you know that one? Of course. You don't know Charlie Pride? I know Charlie Pride, but I don't know that song off the top of my head. Oh, well, I'll sing it to you when we're not recording. I would rather you sing it to me now, but no. I understand. Please <laughs> no, continue. No, no, no. Everybody else wouldn't wouldn't love that. <laughs> so Merced is known as the gateway to Yosemite. It's like still 80 miles out or something from Yosemite, but it is how you would get there. And it's one of the last larger cities before you actually get into the mountains of Yosemite. Right. So it's where you stop and get gas. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big enough town. I mean, it's got 86,000 people, but in 1972 it had more like 30,000 people. So, it's still, you know, got that small town kind of feel to it. Plus, it was 1970, so people just let their kids walk to and from school alone, go buy them cigarettes and come back and, you know, stuff like that. It was Yeah. And 7-year-old Steven was no different. He would walk the couple blocks to and from school every day. It was like a half a mile, which is crazy. Kids must have been more mature back then. Because I couldn't imagine Um, a seven-year-old walking a half a mile to school by himself now. Like the seven-year-olds I know. I just think that the way people parented was so different. It was kind of like, eh, you're fine. Go ahead. You can go handle that. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see it a whole lot anymore. But December 4th, 1972 was a little bit different for Stephen. The weather was pretty bad. It was real cold and rainy. And so that afternoon, his mom, Kay Stainer, decided that she was going to go to the school to pick him up instead of letting him walk home. 
But by the time Kay got there after school, she was like a few minutes after he had gotten out and she didn't see him like hanging around. So she figured he started walking home. So she headed home and thought she'd see him, you know, walking the couple blocks and she would just pick him up. And she had made it all the way back home and he wasn't there. And she didn't immediately panic or anything because Stephen had just gotten into trouble recently for going to a friend's house after school. So she kind of thought, you know what? He didn't tell us again, kind of like last time. But a little while later, her and Dell went to go get their other kids from school because they got out a little bit later than Stephen. They went and picked them up and came home and he still wasn't home. So this is when she starts calling his friends and calling around to find out where the hell he is. But no one had seen him. Yeah. Now she starts to panic. Yeah. She calls the police and reports Stephen missing, which is obviously the best thing to do, the only thing to do in that circumstance, because your mind's probably going a mile a minute. Yeah. Police and her and Dell jump into action right away, and they do everything they can to find Stephen because the weather was getting colder and worse, like, the later it got in the day. So they needed to find him quickly if he was lost or hurt or something because he couldn't be out in those elements. They interview witnesses, start canvassing everywhere, and do an entire area search to see if they can find him. I mean, what else are they supposed to do right now except really lock hands and walk through every field and every, you know, turn that you can find to see if you can find this kid? And ask everybody that's on his route home. And people say they saw him walking home, but didn't see him get into any vehicles or didn't see him on any roads he wasn't supposed to be on. He just kind of vanished. The last person who actually saw Stephen was an attendant at a gas station, and he said that he passed by on his way home, but it didn't look weird. He just kept walking. And So they search all through the night, and the next day his face was on the front page of the Merced newspapers. The larger papers in the area wouldn't really pick it up for a couple of days, but the local papers pick it up right away, and they're real involved in their church, so a lot of members of their church come out and help search. And Yeah, I mean, that was great, though, because they were able to get a hundred-person search party fanned out all over Merced looking for Stephen, you know, trying to find if they could find any kind of clue or anything that led to him, but they didn't find anything. No clues, no signs, no nothing. In the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of false sightings of Stephen, but none were actually him. There was no sign of the seven-year-old, and they even got a bunch of calls from fucking psychics and mediums and all that. (laughs) Sylvia Brown was calling in. God. (laughs) And they had to track down every single one of these leads from these idiots. (laughs) Yeah, why? You're just getting in the way. Stop. I know. Even if you believe in what it is you're doing and that you think you're... Like, why would you call them and tell them that their kid is dead? Like, just leave it alone. I think it's because they actually believe in what they're doing. And so they they think they're helping. They, I think they legitimately think, oh, I'm helping by telling them, hey, he's dead. It's like, how does that help, though? Yeah. Like, we don't know where he is. Like, it if doesn't you think help. he's dead and you know where he is, maybe. But if you think he's dead just to call grieving parents and tell them that their kid is dead like you're a monster that's mean yeah that's mean that's just mean it's a mean thing to do and his parents are super devastated his dad Dell, has been described by people as like a real solid like strong man's man type of guy but after steven goes missing he was destroyed he was like crumbling understandably but his mother Kay was really solid. She was like a rock. She totally held it together. She kept the faith. She knew Stephen was alive in her heart. She, you know, was the strong one for 
for the family. Women are incredible. <laughs> I'll just I'll go out and say that women are absolutely incredible. Yeah, and Dell was quoted in local papers saying like at night she breaks down and stuff, but she really held it together for the family and to do everything. Yeah. Like she, sometimes even when you watch interviews with her, you're like, "What's wrong with her?" But you could tell she just has to be the one that holds it together. She can't lose it. Yeah. Well, they have to. These poor people, they keep Stephen's Christmas presents under the Christmas tree. They tried to leave their Christmas tree up for months. Wow. You know, just hoping that he would come home. But as the weeks go on and on, there was no sign of him. And Kay still doesn't waver. She tells people that she knows he's alive. She can feel it. She has faith. Yeah. Even after a man had confessed to killing Stephen, she still said, no, like he is still alive. The police dug up and looked everywhere for the body on this hillside that this guy said that it was but they didn't find anything again yeah and after months it kind of dies down and there aren't really any leads but the stainers they don't stop they can't stop their little boys missing so they print flyers and they drive up and down they're handing out these flyers all over the place to anyone and everywhere who will take one to do whatever they can to try to find their missing kid you know they really pulled out all the stops to try to make him come home yep and this changes the stainers lives obviously but Even in ways that you don't generally think about. Like, Kay, the mom, said that for years they wouldn't leave the house at the same time because she was sure that if her and Del both left the house at the same time, that was when Stephen would call or come home. Talk about life-altering, you know? I mean, that is... That's just a fear that none of us, most of us, I should say, never have to experience and that's that's just it's so heavy it's just so heavy to think about yeah their other four kids struggled during this time too because this has to change everything for them i mean it's changing not just the fact that they're missing their brother but it's changing their day-to-day lives their parents are a hundred percent spending every waking minute looking for steven so that's got to be a struggle And then it also has to change the way they parent their other four kids. A hundred percent. It has to. It absolutely has to. And, you know, Stephen's seven years old. They have younger kids than that. Yeah. So this really changes the family dynamic in in ways that, honestly, I don't think we can even imagine. Yep. So the Stainers even think to do things like print flyers and send them to school districts all over California in case someone who kidnaps Stephen enrolls him in school. It's so crazy to think about having to do but it's so smart genius i'm sure this happens much more frequently now but i've never heard of this happening and i think that yeah this is a genius thing and it shows how much faith they actually still have that he's alive i mean statistics tell us at this point he's probably not alive anymore right but they are pressing on keeping the faith and thinking he's going to come home eventually yep And they keep buying him birthday presents and Christmas presents, and they just never lose that faith. Wow. Like we said, though, things are never the same for the Stainer family. And things like the Stainers would never move either. They wanted to make sure Stephen knew where they were. So they're just stuck in this awful cycle year after year after year, knowing nothing about their son, not really being able to move or go anywhere because they don't know what happened to him. They're just like in a limbo. What are they supposed to do? You know, and they didn't even leave the house, much less move from the house. So it's off. It's just it is. It's just awful. And it's just stuff that I don't think is talked about on the victim side. It's not just the, the person who's abducted. It's, it affects the entire family so much. 
And this goes on for years and years and years. And then in 1980, 250 miles away in a small town of about 10,000 people called Ukiah, California, there's a little five-year-old boy named Timothy White. And he was teeny tiny, really light blonde hair, just a cute little kid. And both of his parents worked. So after school, Timmy would walk to his babysitter's house, which is, like I said, another thing. This is crazy. He's five. Yeah. Like, I know five-year-olds that don't know their left from their right. And this kid, like, knows how to get to his babysitter's house. I know a 16-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I just think kids are, kids must have been smarter back in the day. But on the afternoon of February 13th, 1980, which was my mom's 15th birthday... Oh, happy birthday, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Timothy got out of school at 11 a.m., but he didn't show up to his babysitter's house. So she called his parents right away when he didn't show up, and the police. They get on it right away, because Timmy's five. Like, there's no way he yeah. ran away or... Yeah, so panicking immediately is completely <laughs> within reason. Although, yeah. seven isn't much better, and they kind of, you know, pump the brakes on that a little bit, but yeah. understandably so. Five is just so young. Yeah, they do, though. They start searching right away. They bring in helicopters. They do ground searches. Word gets out about Timmy disappearing quickly because they, at first, I think they assume he got lost because he's five. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely think that, too. But Timmy's parents, like Stevens, they do everything that they can, and they even offered a reward right away for his return. And people passed out flyers, went door to door searching and looked for tips. And they start coming in on sightings of him. And again, the psychics start piling up on what they do or don't know. Yep. But none of this leads to finding Timmy. By a couple of days after Timmy goes missing, police are pretty convinced that he was kidnapped, that he didn't just get lost. Fair. Yeah. So the Ukiah businesses and, you know, local citizens and stuff, they put together a $15,000 reward expecting to get a ransom request for Timmy because this is 1980. And from what I've read in all of these old newspaper articles and stuff, people really thought that's why kids got kidnapped was for murder or for ransom. Like there was no other reason. And since they didn't find a body, they assumed somebody was going to be asking for money for this kid. Was pedophilia just so overlooked yeah. at this point? Because it's not like it's new. No, people just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. They're just like, well, it's either to kill them or to get money out of them. It's yep. not to be weird with them. We heard that in the Johnny Gosh thing, too. Remember, the police did not want to admit that that could be a reason he was kidnapped. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And I mean, I guess. And this is right I, around I, the same time because we're in 1980 now. Yeah. People just didn't want to admit that kind of stuff happened, which I get. I don't want to admit it happens either. I don't want it to happen. I don't love him. <laughs> I don't love talking about it here, but, you know, it's yeah. something we do have to talk about to help it from happening. Yeah, but no ransom request ever comes in. So they try everything, including hypnotizing witnesses to try to get more info. Like, they're grasping at straws here. Yeah, no kidding. Like, we both know how well hypnotists work <laughs> yeah they're real they're, they're real useful but like even something like this you know like are they really witnesses probably not you know right 
So the Whites' new normal looks a lot like the Stainers. Their whole world is searching for their son. Day in, day out, days turn into weeks. It's not looking good. The police even admit that they're probably at the point where they should probably be looking for a body. Yeah. Like, they just know it's been too long. I mean, again, statistics tell us that, you know, when young kids go missing, it doesn't usually end well. Then just before midnight on March 1st, 1980, 16 days after Timmy went missing, there's a police officer that's at the police station in Ukiah and he's getting ready for his shift and he looks up and he sees a little boy start to walk through the door of the police station and then he changes his mind and turns around and runs away. Well, that's suspicious. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what the cop thought, too, especially because of the t- it was like midnight. Yeah. You know, there's no reason a little tiny kid should be out at midnight. No. So obviously it's dark and late and that police officer was concerned. And that kid was super young, too. Again, he doesn't know how old he is, but he knows that he's small and really young. So he radioed another officer who was a couple blocks away and he asked him to go check out and see if he could find any kid just wandering around or anything. Right. And so that officer starts driving towards the station and he's looking and he sees it. He sees two kids. One was a teenager and the other was that little boy that he stopped him, obviously, and was like, hey, uh, what are you guys doing? And the older boy said, oh, we're just we're looking for this kid's house. A cop asked the little boy, like, what's your name? And he said, I'm Timmy White. God, could you imagine? No. The cop was a little confused, though, because missing Timmy White whose picture was everywhere for the last 16 days, he was a towhead, and this kid had dark brown hair. But the cop is concerned enough with whatever the hell this situation is that he puts both of them in the back of his squad car and takes them to the police station. That is fantastic police work. Yeah, when they get back to the station and they start asking the older boy, like, what the hell is going on? He wasn't real forthcoming with a lot of information. You know, it seems like he's scared and timid, but eventually... He told them that his first name was Stephen and that he thinks people in Merced might be looking for him because he's been missing for seven years. He thought his last name was Stainer, but he wasn't sure. He wasn't even sure of his birthday. Gosh, what trauma. This is when everyone realizes that not only had they just found Timmy White, but this was another missing boy who brought him into the police station. Like, they just solved two cases at once. And by accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, they what? almost didn't. And who would have even ever believed that Steven Stainer was still alive? I mean, Timmy yeah. White is still pretty fresh, but Steven Stainer is years old. Like, they're not really expecting to find him alive. Yeah. Seven years. Crazy. Yeah, so of course they want to figure out where they've been and with who and why and for how long and what the hell's going on here. So they start asking Stephen questions. And he is not super forthcoming, and they don't bring in an expert or child psychologist or anything like that. They're just like, hey, tell us what happens. You know, <laughs> like, where have you been? This What's is going not on? fantastic police work. No, but they didn't know. This was so new. This had never happened. Like, when was the last time two missing kids just walked in? They, there was no, like, yeah. blueprint for how to deal with this. So they just start asking him questions. I Yeah, the first one would be like, where did you come from? Both of you. How did you get here? Yeah. And so at first, Stephen's not super forthcoming, but eventually he breaks down and he tells them that his father, Kenneth Parnell, kidnapped Timmy and he couldn't let Timmy go through what he went through for the last seven years. So he decided to bring him home. Obviously, we know Kenneth Parnell isn't his father. His father is Del Stainer. So we already have a glimpse into kind of the trauma that Stephen's been under. Yeah. 
he thinks that his kidnapper is his father, which is really right. sad. It's super sad, of course, yeah. We'll get more into this as we go on in the story, and he obviously knows that he isn't because he knows his name is Steven and that he might be missing and stuff, but this is the life he's lived for the last seven years, is this Kenneth Parnell as his father. They go and they find Kenneth Parnell right away. He's working at a hotel like a mile away. So he's brought in and they're trying to sort all of this stuff out. And Parnell isn't going to help them, though, because he lawyers up right away. And who the hell would take this case as a lawyer? But okay, (laughs) Yeah, which is pretty much the only thing you could do at this point. Like, he's pretty fucked. I mean, he had possession of two missing kids and one that's been missing for seven years. Yeah. So the next couple of hours are pretty hectic. They call the Whites around 3 a.m. and they rush over to the police station like right away. And when they come in the room, they didn't recognize Timmy either because his hair had been dyed and he hadn't had a shower or a bath in the 16 days he was missing. Yeah. And it wasn't until Timmy said something like, mommy, they did something to my hair. And then she obviously recognized that it was her son. And Oh, my gosh. The amount of emotion. Yeah. So overwhelming. Yeah. The relief and the joy. Yeah. Yeah, this nightmare is finally coming to an end. Yeah. So the police send Timmy to the hospital right away to get checked out while they still talk with Steven. At the hospital, they don't find any sign of trauma or molestation in Timmy's case, which you can't always see from a a medical exam. But Timmy is also saying there wasn't any. Yeah, which is amazing. I mean, people kidnap kids for that reason. Yeah. Not just for money. Yeah. So sometime around this time, they also send a Merced police officer to the Stainer home to inform them. You know, the Stainers get a knock on the door at three, four o'clock in the morning, and it's a police officer. He says, hey, we need to talk to you about your son. And they automatically think Carrie, their older son, Carrie, because he was in Yosemite camping. Oh. So they thought, well, maybe he got hurt or fell or got lost or something, you know. Gosh, yeah. The police tell him to sit down. It's about Steven, you know. And I watched an interview with Kay and she's like, I immediately thought it was bad news. Why wouldn't you? At that time in the morning, like typically police aren't coming over with great news. But what's crazy is that she kept the faith for the seven years he was missing the whole time. She never wavered. She always thought he was alive. And then when that cop knocked on her door and said, we have news about Steven, she said for until he told her for a half a second, she thought it was bad. And she's like, isn't that weird? Like, I kept the faith the whole time. And then right when it came down to it, I was like, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, I oh, wow. Facing it in your it was facing her like, yeah, you know, she couldn't she couldn't deny it anymore. Well, and they said, we found your son, Steven, and they had to ask, is he alive? Wow. You guys probably should have led with that. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Guys, we found Steven. He's alive. Like, get it out of your mouth quick. Yeah. We found your son, Steven, and just pause for dramatic effect. Yeah. The police officer has to tell them that he's four hours away in Ukiah, and they'll bring him home when they're done sorting the details, and the Stainers wanted to go pick him up right away, and, you know, obviously, but the police said that they couldn't. That they had to interview him and get what the hell happened and where he's been. You know, they have to get it all. Yeah, I understand that, but I'm on my way. Yeah, this is different now. Yeah. This would have been handled totally different nowadays. And part of the reason that it would be handled different nowadays is because of how they handled it in Steven's case. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but they're like, oh, oh sure. man, we 
we didn't handle that very well. Not his family, but just everybody in general. The police, the media, you know, they just didn't know. Yeah, everybody learned from it. Yeah, big time, which sucks because they had to learn from it at Stephen's expense, but... But they learned about his story, though. They got to finally understand what actually happened to him. They got part of the story. True, they they got as much as Stephen was willing to... To be forthcoming about, which was on the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, Stephen was seven years old and he was walking home from school and a man had stopped him and asked if he thought his parents would like to donate any money to his church. And Stephen, he knew that his parents were religious, so he said, yeah, I think my mom might. (laughs) Which makes sense. She's, you know, a pretty active member in the LDS church. Like, she, they go to church multiple times a week. He probably thought she would donate. She's a nice lady. She'd probably donate. Yeah, she probably would. I mean, he's yeah. seven. You know, and yeah. she's, he's probably seen her donate to their church. Yeah. So this is when Kenneth Parnell pulled up and the other man told Stephen that he was a pastor and to get on in. They were going to take him for a drive to his house and they were going to go get that donation from his mom. So Stephen, being an obedient kid, you know, was always taught to listen to adults and be respectful. And this is a minister. Sure. He didn't argue and he got in. But they just kept driving past Stephen Street. And when he told them they had passed it, they just kept driving. After a bit, Kenneth pulled over and went to a payphone. And when he came back, he told Stephen, hey, talk to your parents. They said you could stay the night. Yeah, which is like, no thanks. Yeah. Ooh. Didn't want to do that. Thanks, though. But Stephen didn't know what to do, so he just obeyed him, you know, and he stayed in the car with him, and they took Stephen to his place in Kathy's Valley, which is like 40 miles away from Merced. And at Kenneth Parnell's house, he had toys and clothes, and the manipulation of Stephen started immediately. Whenever Stephen would ask to go home or get upset, Parnell would tell him that his parents were mad at him and didn't want him home right away. And he suggested that his parents were mad. And then Stephen would be like, oh, yeah, I got in trouble last week for not coming straight home from school. And then Parnell would like elaborate on that and be like, yeah, they're super mad. And he probably told him like, oh, and see, you just did it again, too. Like, they're really mad at you. Yeah. I I don't know if that's happened, but I could definitely see that playing into it. Yeah, he just, he just manipulated, I mean, Stephen was seven. So after a few days of this, the man left for a while. And when whenever he would leave and go to work or leave and go anywhere, he would drug Stephen with sleeping pills. So when he came back, he had papers and he told Stephen that he had gone to court and his parents decided to give Parnell custody of Stephen because they couldn't afford five kids anymore. And Parnell was now his dad. Gosh, just the absolute level of manipulation that went into this and the plan. I mean, he obviously he had toys and clothes ready like it's like he was preparing to adopt a child, you know, like he was planning for a kid to stay there with him. So he told Stephen his new name was Dennis Parnell and that he was now his father. And within the first few weeks that he was there, he had Stephen calling him dad, whether it was by manipulation or by force or that's the same thing when you're seven. Oh, for sure. And they moved around. Stephen had been enrolled in several different schools with fake birth certificates. And every time they'd be in a place long enough for Stephen to start adjusting, making friends, trusting teachers, Parnell would get nervous, pull the plug, and they would have to move again. They'd move a lot to different cities and different trailer parks, rundown motels all over California. By 1980, Stephen was in high school, but not doing very well because him and Parnell lived in a one-room shack, like miles and miles and miles 
miles away from the nearest school. So his attendance was terrible because he had to hitchhike on a rural road into town to go to school. And some days he just couldn't get a ride. Uh, what was he supposed to do? So he just stayed home. Like, yeah. Parnell didn't care. Parnell didn't actually care about him. He was just trying to play the part. Yep. And it was in this shack in Manchester, California, like 47 miles from Ukiah, that one day Kenneth Parnell came home with Timmy White and told Stephen, hey, here's your new little brother. What a complete trip. For him to bring home another kid, it didn't sit well with Stephen. Stephen quickly took Timmy under his wing and really shielded him from Parnell. And Yeah, I guess they had animals like goats and different animals at this little like ranch shack thing that they were living in. And so Stephen would take Timmy outside and play with the animals and teach him how to feed them, stuff like that. And like you said, he immediately saw a lot of himself at seven in Timmy. He saw how scared he was, how much he missed his family, how sad he was. And he realized right away that Timmy was kidnapped. And, you know, because Timmy told him. Yeah. And Stephen had to get him home before he ended up with Parnell for as long as Stephen had been with him. And when Timmy begged Stephen to take him home, Stephen promised him that he would. You know, Stephen was finally able to be to Timmy what Stephen had wanted for all those years. You know, he'd wanted someone to come and take care of him and be a safe haven. And nobody was there for Stephen because obviously he was in seclusion. But Stephen was able to be there for Timmy, which is really cool. And he kept his promise. He tried four times to take Timmy home before that night. They would leave the cabin in Manchester every night when Parnell would leave for his night shift at the hotel in Ukiah. And they'd go out to that, you know, rural road and try to hitchhike. And one of the problems the first night was that it was raining and cold and Timmy got scared and wanted to go back. The other nights, they were on that rural road for a long time and no cars came, or at least nobody stopped. Yeah, they lived in the middle of nowhere, you know? There was nobody who was just coming around. Right. But finally, on that fourth attempt, someone stopped and gave them a ride to Ukiah, which I I have a lot of questions about that, too, because, okay, you see these kids, you stop, that makes sense, but why wouldn't you take them to the police station or to their house? You know, I wonder what they told this driver. Like, they're a long way from anywhere that they're supposed to be. I wonder what story they told them. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think we've ever heard what story he told the driver. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty insignificant piece. Yeah. Well, they've never found that driver either. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I can guess, I can kind of understand. I mean, he probably doesn't want to be too involved. Yeah. So once they were dropped off in Ukiah, they walked to the babysitter's house first and no one was home. When Timmy couldn't remember where he lived, because remember, he didn't walk home to his house. He walked home to the babysitter's house. Right. That's when Stephen didn't know what to do. He was like, oh, man, where does this kid live? You know, and then that's when he (sighs) used a payphone to find out where the police station was. He figured that the police would find his parents. And then Steven could get back to the highway and hitchhike a ride back home because he had to get back home before Parnell got home from work. Steven was free. Like he could have just been like, well, I'm going home now. This is great. But this was his life. This is how manipulated he was and how much Parnell had abused him to think that, hey, this is where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. So he was doing the right thing with Timmy, but not for himself. Right. Like his plan was to drop Timmy off and go back. Yeah. To go back. Yeah. But like you said, that was his life. He didn't know any different. He thought Parnell was his legal dad. You know, it's it's bad. 
Yeah, it's really bad. I mean, he was a small child, a baby when he was abducted, and he had a really hard time opening up about his life as Dennis Parnell, too. Yeah, he did say that Parnell never abused him or Timmy, and that he thought Parnell just wanted a family. And he wasn't married, so he couldn't have a family, so he had to create one. Yeah, and Stephen said that his life was pretty normal-ish, all things considered. They didn't have much money, and and moving around a lot was kind of the only piece that was not what he, I guess, was used to doing when he had lived with his other family, because they had stability and money and weren't real weird. Well, another thing that was normal to Stephen, but isn't normal to everyone else, was that Parnell was not super strict with Stephen. You know, Stephen was only 14 years old and Parnell let him smoke and drink and didn't really care if he didn't go to school. Like he was very loosey-goosey on the rules. And that's kind of strange though. You would think for somebody who is this manipulative, he would want to have control over every single thing in his life, but it doesn't seem like he was really that way. Right. All of this is strange. This story is wacko, but they let him talk and they start asking Timmy questions because Stephen wasn't there when Timmy was kidnapped. So they had to ask Timmy questions about his abduction. Like, what happened? You know, because Stephen wasn't there to tell them. Yeah. Stephen just came home to him. and Yeah. But Timmy told him that there was another man with Parnell. And when they grabbed him, they forced him into Parnell's car and off they went. So that's an interesting story because that's the same story that Stephen gives was that it was two men, not just Parnell. Yep, exactly. So who is Parnell finding to help him with these? Because yeah. that's... That's a whole other issue. Yeah. So the police are trying to get as much info from Timmy and Steven as possible, but this is a shit show. To say the least. You know, this first day or two is really bad. They don't bring in his family. They don't bring in any experts or anything like that. And then they parade him and Timmy in front of the media at a press conference before Steven has even seen his family. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable today. It Obviously, yeah. they didn't know what they were doing. Well, and they were so excited. Yeah. You know, they had searched for Stephen for seven years, and this was such a miracle story. Like, they were just so excited to tell everybody that they found Timmy, and also, look at Stephen's a hero. You know, like, they found Stephen, too. They were just so excited. So within literally hours of them being found, they were in front of the media, being asked questions when they hadn't even been asked by professionals yet or by their parents. Their parents. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the press are asking super inappropriate questions, too. And both of these boys are terrified and traumatized. You know, they've been through a lot. And the police are under the impression that Parnell had kidnapped him but hadn't abused them sexually. And he just wanted a family and Stephen and Timmy were his ticket to that because that's what they told them. So that's what they told the media. Right. That could be another factor why the police were like, well, these kids are, you know, I'm sure they're traumatized, but they're fine. You know, and they just put him in front of the press. Like, that's not how that works. No. After this press conference, they take Stephen out to this cabin that he's been living at with Parnell in Manchester to get his dog. He has a dog named Queenie and some of his stuff. And they kind of do like a cursory search of the cabin and they find the clothes Timmy was wearing the night he went missing, the Valentine, stuff like that. But they didn't really like cordon it off or make it a crime scene, which is unbelievable to me. They found the clothes from the day Timmy went missing? 
Yes. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. Because he'd probably change clothes. He just hasn't bathed in anything. But Parnell right. probably already had clothes for him. Fucking creep. Yeah, he dyed his hair and changed his clothes and all that stuff. Yeah. Once they get his dog and they let him pick up a few things that were his, you know, from the cabin, they finally drive him the four hours down to Merced to see his parents. This is ridiculous. Like, absolutely ridiculous. I And I know we're dealing with it but well before things were different, but like... To me, it just seems like common sense. Yeah, totally. Find a missing kid, take him home. Right. Which, after this case, it will be kind of like, oh, shit, why did we do that? Like, that's crazy. You know, but I think they were just so excited. And you have to remember, Ukiah is like the distance between L.A. and Vegas, you know, from where Merced is. Like It's like a four-hour drive. Right. It's not like his parents were right down the street and they weren't letting him see them. Four hours isn't that much. Oh, no. Like... I agree. Take them to him. Meet in the middle. Yeah. Like, have them come here. <laughs> Whatever. But make this happen. Yeah. By the time they take him to Merced to see his parents, it's been like a whole day or more since he was found and the entire city of Merced is at the Stainers. Like, there's hundreds of people on their front lawn, in their house, in the neighbor's houses, the press is there because they're excited. Everybody in Merced is freaking out that Steven's been missing for seven years and now here he is and he's okay. Nobody expected him to be alive. Right. And not only is he alive, he's good. And he's a hero. He came back a hero. Like, not only did he survive his capture, he saved another kid in the process. Yeah. So there's very famous pictures and videos of Stephen walking up with his little dog, Queenie, in his hand and hugging his mom and dad and his brother, Carrie, and his sisters, Cindy, Jody, and Corey for the first time. Like, that was the first time he saw his family in seven years. And it's in front of the entire world. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like we said, this is not the way to handle finding a missing child, but they didn't know. They were so happy and they just wanted to share it with the community and the press that helped them get the word out when Stephen was missing. It's crazy, but the press was relentless. Stephen answered questions on his front lawn right away, like an impromptu press conference right on his front lawn. So this is now his second press conference since he's been found. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, let him rest. Yeah. Let him talk to his fucking parents. He's got to get to know them. Yeah. He doesn't even know them. They don't even know him. No kidding. This is the first time the Stainers learn that there was another man with Parnell when he abducted Stephen because of one of the questions that one of the media people asked. Like, they didn't even know there was two guys that abducted him. It's just crazy to me that we're all learning about this at the same time. His parents are learning about this at the same time that the world is learning about it. How all of this went down. Yeah. So then the police start looking for, you know, the man who helped Parnell kidnap Stephen. And they find out that his name is Irvin Murphy. And he actually worked with Parnell at a lodge in Yosemite. He was still working there in 1980. So police go looking for him to arrest him because he's now part of this too. And who agrees to this? He admitted to his role in the kidnapping of Stephen, but he said that he didn't help with Timmy's kidnapping, which is strange. Yeah. You would think it would be the same person, but it seems he didn't grasp the full picture because (laughs) it's believed that he also thought that Parnell just wanted a family, but this isn't how you do it. Right. But it seems like he didn't grasp the full picture of what he helped do. This is going to come out later at trial, but he's not all there. That's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, he's mentally 
not 100%. You know, the media back then was a little harsh, but they call him dim-witted and slow. It'll come out later at trial, but it's believed that he really did think Parnell just wanted a family, and he was easily tricked and gullible. We'll get into that later. It's not excusing what he did, because it's bullshit. Yeah. And he doesn't get away with it. I mean, they've arrested him. So, but he does say that he was not the one who helped in Timmy's kidnapping. Well, that's something. Yeah. So, like we said, this first couple days are really hectic. Everybody's learning stuff like all at once and things are coming out and this is happening. And so at the same time that Stephen is trying to get to know his family again and the police are arresting Irvin Murphy and asking him questions, the press is digging in to Kenneth Parnell and they learned that he had previous convictions for sex crimes against children. He was a pedophile. <sighs> And he had been deemed by the courts as a sexual psychopath. And he had spent multiple stints in mental facilities and multiple stints in prisons. And he was a bad guy. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. He was not like this loving religious minister guy who just wanted a family. Like, he was a shithead. Yeah, and the media confronted the police and Stephen about this very harshly. And Stephen denied it, obviously. Like, yeah. This kid is traumatized, not only from what he's been through, but now realizing that his entire life has been a lie. And realizing that his entire life is gone. Yeah. You know, he had friends and school and things he did. I mean, even just Parnell. That's a, a somewhat of a loss, too. You know, that guy has been his dad for seven years. Totally. Yeah. And the media asking an abused child hey, is this guy abusing you? Like, they're obviously going to say, no, they don't know you. They don't trust you. There's no, like, rapport. Here. Like, this is not the way to ask a child if they've been sexually assaulted. Right. There's a lot of psychological trauma that goes with that. Totally. So it's I totally get why he would lie and say no. Yeah, the press were relentless with Stephen, too, and they even followed him to school for his first day of high school. Literally followed him into his class. Yeah, with news cameras and microphones. So it's really easy to understand why Stephen wasn't very forthcoming with all this information. He was not telling them the whole story. Who would want this all over the media? Yeah. Especially... Because he hasn't even had enough time to process this yet. He hasn't had the ability to get enough of that time to let it sink in and, and work through all of that. And he, again, already has microphones and cameras in his face. He doesn't even know his parents well enough to tell them. That's... Like, he, he doesn't have anybody that he can tell this to. Obviously, this is different now because we have victims advocate groups and all that kind of stuff. And there's been history of this. So people don't do this now. But it's easy to see how he could feel like it would have been better off if he would have just stayed with Parnell. Totally. You know, him pretending to be Dennis was a survival technique, you know, and at least he had privacy and some sort. Of, he was obviously, you know, not having a good life, but he had some sort of normalcy. Yeah. But it's like now... The media is literally following him to class. It's like, oh my God. I can't even believe they were allowed in the school. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. Again, like thinking about stuff like that now, that kind of stuff would never happen now. Like there would be boundaries. There would be things in place, yeah. which I mean, maybe we had to go through those things to get to these kinds of new limitations, I guess is a good word. Yeah. Well, then the most unbelievable part of this story. So Steven's back home. He's trying to get used to his family and they're trying to get used to him and learning everything about him. Parnell's in jail. So they're all just trying to blend together as a family. The media and the landlord for Parnell, they end up going back to the shack 
that Stephen and Parnell were living in. And they found pictures, very explicit pictures. Yeah. And why the police weren't involved in this. And the police had done a search of the shack, but they just grabbed a few things and that was it. So that does seem like an oversight to me that they wouldn't hardcore search this. I mean, you think they would search it for everything. Yeah, totally. But they didn't. And so the media reports on these photos that they find in graphic detail, which is when the Stainers find out with everybody else. The Stainers should not be finding out about Stephen's kidnapping or about these photos at the same time as the world does. It's just mind-boggling that that's what's going on. Yep. Once the papers start reporting on these photos in graphic detail, the police confront Stephen with them and he finally admits that Parnell has been sexually abusing him relentlessly right from the start. This is happening so backwards. It's unbelievable. Yeah. This had to happen to this kid for laws and ethics and victims advocates to have to be a thing like we kind of talked about. So Stephen yeah, but really it shouldn't have had to do. It shouldn't have had to be that way. It should have been. It seems like common sense stuff to us now. But Stephen is a bigger hero now because of it. Like it really like it, it expands because he had to go through this because he survived because he got Timmy home. He really changed the way that victims are viewed. Yeah, but the way this all came out about the sexual abuse, it just, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is the way that this kid had to deal with this. Oh, absolutely. Just all over the media for everybody to see. It's just like, oh my gosh. So the next few months are really rough for Stephen, obviously, and the Stainers. All of them. Yeah, this abuse was splashed all over the papers and the news. He had to try to get to know his parents who were dealing with the fact that he has more trauma than they originally thought he had. You know, they're learning all this at the same time. And his parents are LDS and not big fans of the fact that he was smoking and drinking and pretty much did whatever he wanted so this is a rough time for the stainers yeah and really he had to get used to his older brother carrie too because he was now sharing a room with him too so there's a lot changing really fast for not just steven the entire family is going through huge changes totally and he gets bullied at school he had no control over any of this but they just relentlessly tease him Yeah. It's horrible. It is horrible. He gets treated so terribly at school. Being 14 is hard enough, but it's even harder when you have all of this stuff to go through. And yeah, again, he's also the main witness in Timmy's case that's still happening against Parnell. And he's missed a lot. In his case and Timmy's case. Right, exactly. And he's missing a lot of school being prepped for this trial. He had already missed a lot of school and he's missing more of it now for all of these court dates. And they were moved to counties away that were hours away. He had to go to all of these things. So, you know. Yeah, they had moved the trial from Merced and from Ukiah to a different county that's hours away. So like you said, they've been shuffling him. You know, he's missing weeks of school. So that normal-ish life that he was living with Parnell, which obviously was not normal-ish. Terrible. It's bad here now, still trying to get all of this solved, you know? So yeah, he was in a no-win situation. Yep. And it took over a year for Parnell and Murphy to go to trial. And in the meantime, the police identify the accomplice in Timmy's kidnapping. And they identify him as a 15-year-old boy named Sean Poorman. Apparently, this kid owed Parnell money for weed. And then Parnell convinced him to help him kidnap a boy for the same reasons that he convinced Murphy. Apparently, Parnell's deal is he's good at manipulating people. Really good. 
really, really good. Yeah, he's good at manipulating children, for one. And then he's good at manipulating people into helping him with these awful things he's doing. So this Sean Poorman kid would end up cooperating with police and received a much lighter sentence than he probably deserved. Oh, yeah. They ended up dropping the kidnapping charges for him and just charged him with false imprisonment. And he was a minor. So when we get to the trials, you'll find out he gets off pretty easy. Yeah, that helped a ton. Yeah. But because they're dealing with the statute of limitations on kidnapping and sexual assault, which at this point are only three years, they're longer now, but they're dealing with jurisdictional issues on like what county to try him and for what charges to bring against him for what he did to Stephen. Yeah, because they moved around so much when Stephen was younger. They don't know what charges in what counties they can actually bring against him because they can only charge him for the most recent assaults because the ones from when he was seven are too old they should have no limitations on that kind of stuff yeah well it's it's a lot better now but in the meantime the kidnapping case against parnell and sean poorman for timmy white goes to trial because there's no jurisdictional issues there that's a fresh case they know where it happened they know when it happened so Stephen is shuffled back and forth to be there as the main witness in timmy's trial parnell's defense was wild His defense in Timmy's trial was that Poorman and his dad, Hank, kidnapped Timmy and then made Parnell hold him for them because they knew he had kidnapped Stephen. So they were going to use it as like blackmail. Like, we know you kidnapped Stephen, so we kidnapped this Timmy kid and now you have to hold him for us or we're going to tell the cops about Stephen. And what would be their reasoning for that? Ransom? Like, someone finally kidnapping kids for money? (laughs) Stupid. It is the dumbest defense I've ever heard. He's admitting to kidnapping Stephen in this defense. Right. Because he's not on trial for anything he did to Stephen. Crazy. So it's really stupid. But Timmy gets up and testified that it was not Poorman's dad, Hank, and Poorman. It was Parnell and Poorman. So Timmy blows his whole story out of the water and is like, no, that's not what happened. Way to go, Timmy. I mean, Timmy at this point's what? Six? Yeah. You know, that's that takes a lot of courage for him to be able to do that. Yeah. He could barely see over the little witness stand. It was so cute. <laughs> it was so cute. But he was, matter of fact, you know, he corrected people when they were wrong or when they said something that he didn't say. Like, he was a pretty good witness for being six. Yeah. So Parnell gets convicted of kidnapping in Timmy's case, and he receives a seven-year sentence, which was the maximum allowed under the law at that time. <laughs> that is absolutely insane. Yeah. Kidnapping could hold a three, five, or seven-year sentence. So the judge gave him the maximum. Yeah, which is totally different now. I'm pretty sure the maximum now is life. I think it is too, yeah, which it should be. <laughs> yeah, of course. So Sean Poorman, his accomplice, who that 15-year-old kid who was his accomplice, he's convicted of false imprisonment and only given two years in a juvenile detention facility. The reason I said it that way is because I don't think that's enough time. No, it's not enough time at all. Like, I understand he was a child, too, and he was manipulated, but you help somebody kidnap a child. Like, forcefully, he grabbed that kid and threw him in Parnell's car. That's no way. Yeah. I was surprised that he wasn't tried as an adult, too. Yeah. So, by the time Parnell and Murphy go to trial for Stephen's case... The DA makes a decision not to charge Parnell for any of the sex crimes against Stephen. And the Stainers don't push this. They just want to move on with their lives and they're just like, whatever. I think all of this is the wrong choice. I do. However, on the Stainer side, I can't understand just wanting to get moved away from this and just be done with it. Totally. It's not right. Totally. And Parnell needs to be brought to justice for what he did to him. But 
I can't understand just wanting to put this aside and be done with it. Yeah, so the judge orders them to be tried together, Murphy and Parnell, for kidnapping and conspiracy, but no no charges for the sexual abuse. Nothing. So Parnell's defense in this trial is even more astronomically outrageous than at his trial for Timmy's kidnapping. He tries to argue at this trial that the statute of limitations of kidnapping was three years, and he kidnapped Stephen seven years ago, so he can't be tried. <sighs> These are the types of people who maybe I'm open to the death penalty being on the table for, you know, like. Yeah. He literally tried to say, because I held him captive long enough, I should get away with this. That was his, literally, he tried to get it dismissed because him and his lawyers argued that the crime of kidnapping was when he initially took Stephen. And then the rest of the time, because Stephen was manipulated enough, chose to stay with him. Oh, man. Like, that's crazy. But this is him trying to manipulate people again. It's worked for him every other time. So why not try it again against these people? Well, it doesn't work this time. Finally. The judge rules that the kidnapping was the entire time he had Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> As they should have. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, no, no. It wasn't when you stole him from his parents off the street. It was the entire time you held him. So this trial goes and it, it goes on for a couple weeks. And there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in this trial. Stephen is pretty much on trial. They ask him a lot of questions and insinuate that he should have told somebody about his abuse or he should have ran away or he should have done this or, you know what I mean? Like, they literally put Steven on trial. It's like they're trying to find a reason for Parnell to be off. Yeah. And it also comes out in the trial at this point that Parnell was married to a woman named Barbara for a couple of years while he was holding Steven hostage. Oh, man. I actually didn't know that in all the research I did. I don't remember hearing that. That's crazy yeah. that this woman was involved in this. Yeah. And it's, I've seen a lot of things from his psychologist. Never, there's never been any charges, but there's been a lot of things that said that she was involved in the abuse. You know, with the kind of manipulation that's going on, I'd say that sounds pretty accurate. Yep. So the only good thing that comes out of this trial is that during it, the inmates that are housed in the same jail that Parnell is in, learn about the sexual abuse that he put Steven through during the trial. And Parnell got the shit beat out of him in prison, which was pretty cool. That is, you know, some final ju actual justice is, you know, coming down. Yeah. I was totally fine with that. I was like, oh, that works. Prison justice. Do that like every Friday for the rest of his life. And I'm cool with that. Do we know how? Was it just a beat down or did they put like socks in, in or put uh, soap in socks or, you know, shivs or. I don't know. The only thing that I've heard was that he had two black eyes and a hurt knee. Oh. And they had to postpone the trial for a couple of weeks while he recovered. Sounds like he got off pretty easy then. Yeah, exactly. This trial has been horrible for Steven. Yeah, it has been horrible for Steven, but it's also kind of bad for Irvin Murphy, too, because he's being tried along with Parnell as if they committed the same crime. The jury doesn't seem to agree with this. They tried to convict Parnell of kidnapping and Murphy of a lesser charge, but since they're being tried together and the conspiracy charge makes it to where they have to have the same sentence. So if they let Murphy off on a lighter charge, they also have to let Parnell off. So the judge tells them to go back and figure it out. And when the jury comes back in January of 82, Murphy and Parnell were both found guilty of kidnapping and conspiracy. Even though a lot of people thought that Murphy shouldn't have been convicted of the same thing as Parnell. I, I kind of agree. I mean, he was part of the 
the initial thing, but he didn't do the years of, I don't know. That's right. hard. That's so hard. Cause it's like he initiated it. He was definitely an accomplice and you know, a big part of it, but totally. he didn't do some of the things. It's that's tough. And in the end, his sentence, I, I think is even still probably too light, but in a weird, horrible twist, he ends up getting more time than Parnell. That's so crazy. So that I don't agree with, but I do think his sentence is appropriate. It's Parnell's sentence that isn't appropriate. Right. So the next month, the judge sentences Parnell to the max of seven years, which is already too little. Way too little. Yeah. But remember, I told you three, five or seven years is the sentencing for kidnapping at the time. But because of a weird California statute, two kidnapping sentences can't run consecutively. They have to run concurrently. And he's already serving a seven-year sentence for Timmy. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he only gets 20 months for Stephen's kidnapping. He held him captive and sexually abused him for seven years, and he got less time for that than Stephen had to do than for staying with him. That is preposterous. Yeah, agreed. That's so, so stupid. Yeah. And Irvin Murphy got five years for his role in Stephen's kidnapping. Jeez. So more time than Parnell. Yeah, that is nuts. It's hard to say if that sentence is just or not. If Irvin Murphy was just like a guy who did this and then never told anybody, I would say that's still not enough time. But from everything that I've heard about his mental capacity and the way he treated Stephen and all that stuff, I think five years is probably appropriate for his sentence. All right. This short sentence, though, got everybody pissed. I mean, people were like, are you fucking shitting me? Just like you did. We're still mad. He held him like he held him captive for seven years. That's crazy. So a bunch of laws were changed within the next couple of years, allowing for longer sentencing for kidnapping and longer sentencing for sex crimes. And with longer sentencing, that means longer statute of limitations, like all that kind of stuff. So this really did get a lot of laws changed in California. Well, that's good. So Stephen wasn't very happy with these sentences, obviously, but he was ready to just move on with his life. I mean, not only did Parnell steal him from his family and abuse him for seven years, but now he's been held captive in a different way for a couple of years with all these trials. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And because of this, Stephen already struggled with school, but he's starting to struggle with the rules at home, too, because Parnell didn't have any. Again, he was smoking, drinking, kind of doing whatever he wanted. And he struggled for a long time about the sexual abuse, too. And he said in interviews that it helped to talk about it, but the family never really sought counseling for him. And I think that's pretty on par with the time of that it is. I don't think counseling was sought after very often. No. And I've seen interviews where he also says that the other reason that he talks about it, even though it's painful and, you know, that's something that happened to you that's personal, you know, and you're sharing it with the world. But he said that he does it because he hopes that there's another kid out there going through the same thing he was and will have the courage to come forward. Again, I mean, it's a, this is a special kid, honestly. Like, that's a special mindset. Yeah. But as he grows up, like you were saying, he was struggling a lot. And eventually he moves out of his parents' house and he was drinking a lot and smoking pot. And he was just trying to cope, I'm sure, you know, just trying to deal with what happened to him. But when he was 19, he met a woman at the butcher shop he worked at and they went on to marry and they actually had two kids. So kind of a happy ending, more or less. Stephen quit drinking and by all accounts, he was 
a really good father from what his kids have said. He started, you know, settling down and really started to find his groove in life. He was able to kind of work past the trauma that had happened to him, and he was able to make a decent life for himself. Later on, they went on to make a TV movie about all of this in the mid-80s. He actually even made a cameo in that movie as as a police officer. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I think so, too. It's like Stan Lee making an appearance in the Avenger movies. Yeah, and he was, at the time, taking law enforcement classes at a local college. From what his family said in interviews, it seemed like he was thinking about becoming a police officer. Yeah, that's kind of what I had heard, too. Then... On September 16, 1989, when he was 24 years old, Stephen was riding his motorcycle home from work and a car pulled out in front of him and stalled. And Stephen and the car collided and he was killed by the impact. Ugh. The driver of the car took off. Oh my God. Didn't stick around. Oh yeah. Wow. The driver was caught later and sentenced to 90 days in jail. Dude. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation that he had been drinking, the driver, and that's why he took off. But obviously, once they find him, they can't prove that. It's been a long time. Right. So that's a horrible ending to a really shitty story. Well, and and he was on the up and up, too. It's not like he was wallowing and just a victim of his circumstances. He was starting to be on the up and up and thrive and really get a decent life put together. And then it was just stolen from him at a really, really young age when his life had already been stolen from him at a really young age. Yeah. And then for the person who caused the accident that killed him to also only get 90 days in jail, like to me, it was kind of like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Another super short sentence. This kid just can't get justice for anything. Ever. Yeah. Anything. So Parnell was eventually released from prison on parole and was living in Berkeley, California, when he decided to pay a caregiver to purchase a child for him. What does that mean? Because I I read that too and. How much did he pay him? Well, it was a her. How much did he pay her? And he tried to pay her a couple hundred dollars for a fake birth certificate, which he did, and she delivered. But she went to the police and started working with the police because she's like, this this pedophile wants to buy a child. Yeah. And so they kind of set him up and made him think that she was going to, she didn't, she wasn't going to buy him a child. Thank goodness. But she made him think she was going to help him. So they set him up and then he paid for the child and then got arrested. So in 2004, he went on trial again for this trying to purchase a child and Timmy White ended up having to testify and he ended up was given a life sentence for this because the laws had changed. Yeah, I was going to say, finally. Yeah, because the laws that literally he changed because of his stupid shit. Yeah. (laughs) So, which is good. So he died in prison, thankfully, four years later in 2008. Ah, there we go. Finally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have to deal with that guy anymore. You know what's cool, though? What? Timmy White. He actually grew up to be a police officer for the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. Yeah. But in another tragic twist of this case, he actually passed away from a pulmonary embolism when he was 35 years old, which makes me think twice about everything. Yep. Tragic. Totally tragic. So both these boys were heroes because Stephen saved Timmy from Parnell. And in a way, Timmy saved Stephen. Totally. Because he gave him the courage to get out. So a really tragic end for both of these boys who ended up passing away way too young and leaving behind young families. Yeah, after surviving this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff and then to have both of them taken away at just such young ages is is devastating. Yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah. All of it. 
So on August 28th, 2010, they erected a statue of Stephen and Timothy in Applegate Park in Merced. And then the residents of Ukiah also did their own statue, too, of Timmy and Stephen holding hands, which is really sweet. That is nice. Yeah. Though it was a tragic ending, it's a nice piece like that, so... But it's definitely one of those stories that changed a lot in the legal system, in the media, in the way we deal with victims, in the way we deal with pedophiles. Thank God. Like, yeah, it just changed everything. It changed everything for the better. You know, it got made finally some real laws and things be put in place so that this kind of stuff wouldn't happen anymore. It really opened up everyone's eyes to that kids weren't just kidnapped for ransom or fun. (laughs) You know, like there was a darker sicker reason for it murder i guess was was part of it too which normally it is but i don't think we see too many kids kidnapped for ransom money anymore no but it was really common before this like in the early 1900s all the way to the 30s 40s it was really common for somebody to kidnap a kid and then ask the parents for money to get him back like it was super common probably because they could get away with it then there was no real way to track them so it was like give me the money and off i go got your kid now it's like Cool. Give me your kid. We have no way to get the money. Yeah, we're going to catch you immediately anyway, so whatever. Yeah, there's no way to get the money. Let me give you my routing and account number so you can just transfer it into my bank account. Like, you know, that's that's not how we're doing things anymore. Yeah, one, you can't leave it in a bag in the park anymore either. Like, there's going to be tons of FBI agents with earpieces in. (laughs) And if nothing else, there's cameras everywhere who are watching that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you got to be careful if you're going to ransom a kid for money. Yeah, how about we don't? Oh, that's a good idea, too. We'll stick to that one. Yeah. All right. Well, this was a really sad and devastating story, but I'm glad we told it. It was. It's a really interesting case. I love telling it because it keeps both of their memories alive and gets a, it's a history lesson too on kind of where we've come to get to the laws and you know expectations we have now and what not to do to children when you find them. <laughs> yes, if you find a child, don't kidnap them. That's a good rule. No, if you find a kidnapped child, don't parade them in front of the media. Oh well, that too. Lots of lessons in this one. So, well, if you guys enjoyed this week's episode, make sure you stay tuned next week. You won't want to miss it. Perfect. Don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dough Project. God damn it, Grant. That's my line. Oh, well, it's mine now. Don't forget to yes. upload your DNA to Gedmatch. <laughs> oh. Good. You have roasted. your own again. <laughs> Boom. Roasted. All right. I love you. Love you too, babe. Bye. Bye.